Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. And on tonight's program, we look into Bitcoin, how you can invest in Bitcoin and is it the right time to do so? And we talk to the CEO of Cosmos Asset Management, which has now listed a new product on the ASX in, this, in the area of Bitcoin. Interesting one indeed. And then we talk to Anna Porter of Suburbanite and we try and work out where house prices are going. And is it a good time to, to invest or should you wait? That's a show. Let's kick off now with Paul Rickard and myself talking you through all the ins and outs of Bitcoin. Hello and welcome to Switzer TV. I'm Peter Switzer. And today we're going to look at investing in cryptocurrencies using ETFs. Paul, t tell us about the, the cryptocurrency world. Well, just a bit of a recap on Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are the ETFs are over, Peter. So let's start with Bitcoin. It's the yeah. first and uh, oldest digital currency, 2009. It uses blockchain. I think people are pretty familiar with that. Um, there are about 18.9 million Bitcoins on issue, roughly US $30,000 mm. uh, is the price of Bitcoin. Very volatile, yes. about 40 sort of thousand Australian dollars. Uh, that means that in terms of the, the total value of Bitcoin is about 820 Australian billion dollars. But important point to know with Bitcoin, Peter, is that supply is finite, it's capped at uh, 21 million uh, coins. Uh, which gives it sort of a, I guess, a sense of a bit of a store of value, a bit mm. like some people argue to replace gold, question mark about that. Uh, new supply is mined, but uh, halving events means that it actually becomes, the rewards for mining actually diminish over time. And some suggest that we may never get to 21 million coins on issue. Mm. Uh, this is a graph of uh, the price since uh, 2016. Pretty volatile, got up to in Australian dollars terms, almost $90,000. It's about half of where it was at the peak. But uh, you know, you can see while it's gone up a lot and come down a lot, it's a lot higher than where it was, say, in 2016. So yeah. uh, very volatile uh, uh, digital asset. Now, what about Ethereum? Yeah, look, Ethereum also uses the blockchain. Um, the actual currency is, is often referred to as Ether, but we, people use the terms interchangeably, and we're going to just talk about Ethereum. But mm. Ethereum is actually the, the platform, and uh, uh, Ether is actually the name of the currency. Mm. Look, about five years younger than Bitcoin, came to life in 2014. It uses a fully uh, decentralized platform. It has a major advantage over Bitcoin in the sense that it's a lot faster. So typically a transaction using the blockchain for Bitcoin takes about 10 minutes to update the records. Uh, Ethereum is, is more like around 10 to 20 seconds. So it's, it has more of a, it has more utility as, as a currency per se. Mm. Um, it's a bit different to Bitcoin. There are about 120 million coins on issue at roughly US $2,000. It's worth about 350 billion Australian dollars. So it's about a third of the size of, uh, in terms of market value, the, the Bitcoin. Uh, but there's no finite cap on supply. So uh, it could potentially go as much as it, as it needs to, mm. but there is an annual cap of 18 million coins. So uh, if you can work that through, that's It kind right, of makes you think it's got more potential to grow with business demand to using digital currencies. Yeah, there are a lot of other digital currencies and you know, Ethereum, you could argue 2014, that's still eight years ago, Peter. Mm. So there's te te technologies advanced a lot. So we might get to see something yeah. take more of a currency that can be used to transact in. Mm. Um, look, I guess your point there also shows relevant in the Ethereum price chart, which uh, again, this is in Australian dollars. 
You can say it's actually done a little better than Bitcoin in the last couple of years on a relative basis, but there's a very strong correlation when you look at uh, uh, those two graphs. Yeah. Okay, so tell us, tell us about how you can get into this using ETFs. That's the big innovation. Yeah, so this is uh, the new part, and we now have three exchange traded funds that have been launched at trading on the ASX, and you can trade through uh, brokers such as NavTrade. Let's deal with, first of all, with the two Bitcoin-based uh, ETFs. The first one is from ETF Securities. It's called the ETFS 21 Shares Bitcoin ETF. Mm -hmm. Trades under the ticker of EBTC. So stick that into your quote algorithm yeah. and that'll bring up its price. Uh, it tracks the performance of the price of Bitcoin in Australian dollars uh, and it invests in Bitcoin through the ETFS 21 Shares Wholesale, Wholesale Bitcoin Trust. So I don't like using the word physically, Peter, but it actually owns um, the ETF actually owns Bitcoin, if that makes sense. Yeah, even though there are no Bitcoins <laughs> in, in reality. They're all virtual assets, <laughs> but it actually owns, yeah. actually owns the virtual Physically assets. Physically virtual. Through, yeah. the, through the Bitcoin trust. Yeah. And so one unit of, uh, it has a pricing relationship. So one unit in, uh, of, of EBTC is actually worth 0 0.0001 of a Bitcoin. So yeah. if you buy 10,000 units in the ETF, you actually have one Bitcoin. And that's why it'll trade sort of around, if Bitcoin is trading about 40,000 Australian dollars, this is gonna trade sort of around about $4, if mm. that makes sense. Yep. Now, you can actually take out those virtual assets. So uh, upon application and payment of a fee, mm. you can redeem units in the ETF and exchange for the virtual yeah. Bitcoin. So you don't have to stick in the ETF. I guess you can always cash it out, but you, you can also you, ask for a Bitcoin. Well, you can effectively ask for your Bitcoin back, if yeah. that makes sense. You've got to pay a fee to do it, but yeah. uh, look, its fees aren't too Interesting. expensive. Uh, one thing else to note, that look like all these products, uh, there's a management fee and it's being deducted from the total value of the fund. Uh, it's 1.25% per annum. Uh, there's also a second ETF. This is from uh, a group called, uh, or the investment manager is Cosmos Asset Management. The re re responsible entity is K2 Asset Management. And it's called an access ETF. And the reason it's called an access ETF is you invest in this ETF and that then buys units in, in another ETF, which is called the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. Now, it's fairly unique. In fact, it's the world's first spot Bitcoin ETF and it's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It's kind so, of piggybacking uh, on this big and already first created yep, ETF. Yep, yeah. which, and, and that should replicate the performance of the spot Bitcoin. It's not currently hedged, so mm. you should see the value of the price of this, you know, pretty strong correlation to the price of, uh, of Bitcoin when convert, effectively converted back to Australian mm. dollars. Uh, no management fees, but uh, indirect costs are also of about one and a quarter percent. So uh, it's a second way to invest uh, in Bitcoin. Dealing with Ethereum, Peter, there's an ETF securities also launched uh, the, an Ethereum ETF, which is the ETFS 21 shares Ethereum ETF. It trades under the ASX code of EETH, uh, and it tracks the performance of the price of uh, Ethereum in Australian dollars. Uh, again, the same sort of mechanism invests in the in a specially created fund, the uh, ETFS 21 shares wholesale Ethereum trust, which again will actually own virtual, in, you know, physically own um, yep. virtual Ethereum. <laughs> now, one unit in this is equal to 0.001 of an Ethereum. So buying a thousand units of this should give you roughly one Ethereum. So it's gonna trade about uh, $3, give or take a bit, yeah. because uh, the spot price, the current spot price of Ethereum is about 3,000 Australian yeah. dollars. Okay. And again, upon application and payment of a fee, 
you can redeem units and get the Ethereum back. So uh, if you want to, you know, physically, well, I have to say physically, but at least virtually, you can actually get back the real <laughs> yeah, Ethereum. Yes, yes. Similar you can sort virtually of carry it home. Yeah, similar sort of management fee of, of one and a quarter percent. Okay, now you look at this point, and it's great information, but what are the advantages and disadvantages of getting the crypto ETF-wise? Yeah, and I guess we've got to compare it with ETFs versus the other way you could get, you could get into crypto, and that's essentially setting up and going to a, Direct. an online exchange mm -hmm. and doing yourself. Well, probably three advantages. First of all, Peter, you don't need a digital wallet. Yep. You don't have any issues around private keys, which, uh, you know... And some people have been rifled, haven't they? Yes, some people have been rifled with online exchanges mm. and you've got to store a whole lot of keys and you want to say virtual keys, these yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, your security needs to be pretty tight. Uh, potentially also, given there have been collapses of some of the exchanges in, in historically, um, the custody arrangements here are stronger because you're dealing with pretty reputable people using, you know, big, strong... Uh, custodians to actually, you know, look hold the yeah. the virtual assets effectively on your behalf. Very easy to buy and sell. You can see the price. It takes ten seconds to do a trade. You get a it'll settle through chess, and you'll get a you know chess certificate or a chess statement. Like you do uh, with stocks. Like you do with stocks. And you know, and provide and what should be they've got each of the funds is appointed market makers who are designed to ensure that there is a reasonable bid and offer price. You can't get liquidity. Uh, and you should be able to deal at a reasonably good spread. So they're the, the advantages. There are always disadvantages. First of all, it's indirect ownership, if, you know, as opposed to, I won't say physically owning the yeah. virtual assets, but directly owning the yeah. virtual assets. Uh, but at least with the two products from uh, ETF Securities, you can, if you want to, redeem the units and obtain yeah. the actual crypto. There's a brokerage cost, and there's also a management fee of one and a quarter percent. Uh, they are denominated in Australian dollars. Now, important to note that crypto essentially, is, is, when it's converting back, it's all about US dollars. Uh, and so you're actually taking on addition to the, the, the crypto price risk, currency risk. Now, yeah. that can work for you if, if the Australian dollar falls relative to the US dollar, then potentially you're going to be a winner. If the Australian dollar goes up relative to the US dollar, then potentially you're going to be a loser. So these are denominated Australian dollars. Yeah, really there's important points. There's also an element of currency risk here too. Okay, and I guess a lot of people would be asking, Paul, what is the security of these organisations that are putting these products out? Look, nothing is guaranteed, Peter, but the organisations behind these ETFs, they have to go through a pretty rigorous approval process through ASIC to make sure that they're bona fide. They certainly are. Their managers have been in business for a long time. They've got strong custody arrangements. Uh, they're using reputable exchanges and so forth. So yeah. uh, I think from a security point, do you actually have, you know, do the crypto, does the crypto exist? I don't think you need to worry about with these ETFs. So I think you can put that fear to one side. It doesn't mean they're not going to be incredibly volatile because yeah. we know crypto is volatile. Yes. In addition to crypto price risk, you're also taking on currency risk. So exactly. uh, they're probably the two <clears throat> risks to worry about. I think that in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the, the arrangements in place uh, in terms of the, the integrity of the issuers and the processes around that, I think investors don't need to worry about those yeah, things. It's a very interesting explanation. Thanks for joining us on Switzer TV. But joining me now is Dan Annan, the CEO of Cosmos Asset Management, and they recently listed their ETF product on Bitcoin on the stock market very recently. We just see how it's going, and we've got a few questions we want to ask him about the product. Great to see you, Dan. Oh, great to see you as well. Thanks for having me. Rick is here as well. Hi, Dan. 
Hello. And uh, and we've recently done a bit of a piece on investing in Bitcoins through ETFs. Uh, what's the experience been on the market? Because Bitcoin hasn't made a lot life easy for you over the past <laughs> week or so. That is that is true. I mean, look, one of these are one of the things that you can't time, right? Um, you know, our focus really has been to deliver access to the crypto asset class technology, uh, mainly focused on uh, what I would call the the tried and tested matured coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, and you know, looking at our structure, uh, you know, we're pretty excited to be able to deliver sort of what we would call you know the first of its kind in Australia. Uh, and what's our structure is. CBTC, which is the Cosmos Purpose Bitcoin ETF launched last week, Thursday. Uh, that structure holds uh, the first Bitcoin listed in the world, which is the Purpose Bitcoin ETF listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And that, that exposure basically gives in local investors, Australian investors, uh, exposure to the price movements of Bitcoin. Uh, and then to your point, you know, last, last week was a a bit of an underwhelming experience given sort of the market cycle um, and the volatility we saw. But that said, you know, you know we see you know, sort of the, the price point and correction uh, as a great opportunity for those with a long-term view um, to now have an ETF or a financial product that would allow them to gain access to the exposure. So Dan, it's a, described as an access ETF. Can you explain what uh, that means? Yeah, look, I mean, so if you think about, you know, cryptocurrency and how investors, uh, you know, now wanting through Australians investing in crypto, uh, how they can get access to those exposures, you know, it's one is, you know, going to open a wallet at one of the, you know, exchanges that's available to you or the crypto exchanges that's available to you. You know, which is all well and good, but there's some risk to that. And, you know, when you think about from a regulatory, regulatory perspective, it's not regulated. So from that perspective, you know, you're, you're holding an asset that is not regulated by the, you know, financial institutions for protection of investing. So that's one. Now, I know that the, you know, that side of the market is working extremely hard with regulators to try and get that regulated. But in the current state, it's not regulated. Secondly, you know, when you're investing in these coins, some of the risk that comes with it is security of, you know, your, your codes, right? And, and that can mean that you either have, you know, a cold, cold storage where you have a USB, which, you know, you have to remember your password, et cetera. So those are some of the risks that investors uh, have to sort of consider when you're investing in these um, direct, direct uh, coins uh, through the, the exchanges. Lastly, you know, from a tax perspective, uh, it's really tough to report tax in and, and, and the gains and losses of that exposure, again, because it's not a, a regulated financial product from that perspective. What the ETF does is it gives you a venue, uh, a tried and tested venue for trading shares that gives you direct exposure to the price movements of the cryptocurrency. So you are able to actually look at that ETF alongside your other holdings and assess what type of level uh, you want to introduce into the portfolio. And then, um, obviously, with a, a speculative type investment like Bitcoin, you've got the price issue, but you've also got, I presume, a currency issue. And because, you know, it goes to the, the Toronto Exchange, 
Is the other currency the Canadian dollar or the US dollar? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So when investors buy CBTC here in Australia, what they're getting exposure to is the US dollar exposure to Bitcoin, which is what we hold underneath uh, CBTC. And so your currency risk is, uh, you know, the, the currency fluctuations between the Aussie dollar and the US dollar. And Dan, so uh, in terms of your fund, it invests in this other fund, which holds um, the crypto. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's a virtual asset, but is there any way that um, investors can get access to the crypto or is it all sort of held yeah. for the custodian? Just explain how that works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, our local ETF is custodied by State Street, which is you know, obviously a world-renowned uh, custodian of shares, including ETFs. Um, the purpose Bitcoin ETF, um, the underlying in Bitcoin, it's custodied by Gemini, which, you know, again, the JP Morgans of cryptocurrency custodians. So can investors get, you know, transition their coins to, um, to the ETF? The, sh the short answer is yes. It would be extremely co a compl complicated way to get that done through the authorized participants. So if you, if you keep in mind about how ETF structures work, the ETF structures work with uh, an authorized participant or an AP that sits as the uh, conduit between the issuer and the end investors. So the authorized participant works with the issuer to create shares or redeem shares uh, into the market. And investors can buy and sell shares that are available in the market, which has been created by the authorized participant. So could you take your Bitcoin and transition it to uh, CBTC via the purpose Bitcoin ETF? Short answer there is yes. You will need to work through the intermediary of the authorized participant. And this goes for all ETFs, right? You know, like if, if I own an S&P 500 ETF, and if I wanted to transition my and if I own the underlying in stocks, and if I want to transition my stocks to the ETF, I'll have to go through that same process. Yeah. What Warren Buffett told us a long time ago, uh, and that when everyone's fearful, you got to be greedy. Did you get many <laughs> greedy people going into your stock last week when Bitcoin was creating a fair bit of fear? Well, look, I mean, like I said, it was a it was an underwhelming uh, experience from what you know what we were anticipating in the market, right? So. I mean, I think the word around town is that we expect to see, you know, close to a billion or so in inflows. Uh, and that was based on sort of, if you look at the Australian ETF market, you know, you have, you know, over 130 billion in funds. So if you saw about maybe a 1% move of that asset into to crypto, uh, you could probably get to that number. That said, last week, you know, was a, was a, uh, a volatile time for the market, in particularly, you know, driven by one, you know, we saw, you know, central banks, you know, basically squeezing or taking the liquidity from the the free money that's been in the system, you know, by raising interest rates. So that put uh, a pause on risky assets uh, generally across the board and not just crypto, but across the board. Um, and then you, we also had the incident where, by Luna, which is the algorithm stable coin, um, which was under collateralized um, that also, you know, had that, that issue of basically going to, you know, almost to zero. So, you know, all of that sort of counted into investors that, you know, 
we expected to enter the market basically put a pause uh, on, on their exposure. That said, and I, again, and I, I think we've said this in, in multiple times, you have to have a long-term view with this asset class. Now, we've always said that this asset class uh, is, is a volatile asset class, and you have to have a long-term view of where, where you believe the price point would be, right? So if you look at the current usage uh, specific to Bitcoin, you know, you have 300 million people using Bitcoin globally. Uh, that equates to sort of what we saw with the internet usage uh, in the 90s. Now, you know, and, and this is year over year, we continue to see an increase of 100% of Bitcoin adoption. Now, if you drop that 100% adoption year over year to 80%, it is estimated that we will see close to a billion usage uh, of adopters uh, by 2024. And, and so if you look at the price today and, and of Bitcoin and where it could potentially go, you have to have a long-term view. Um, and we believe, you know, so you know, obviously uh, it's volatile in the, current, in, in the current stance, but we believe it's a, it's a great entry point if you have a long-term view of where this asset class can be. All right, Dan, thanks for joining us. Good luck going forward. All right, thank you. My next guest is Anna Porter from suburbanite.com.au. I want to get an idea of what she's seeing in the market right now and where there might be value. Anna, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. A lot of negative headlines around at the moment. Uh, I know you've lived through these sorts of headlines and periods before. Uh, what are you seeing actually in the residential uh, property market, particularly Sydney, but you do, you do look right around the country, don't you? We sure do. And it's a bit of a tale of two cities. So we're seeing Sydney is starting to come off a little bit. We're seeing auction clearance rates are dropping a bit. Properties are selling outside of auction formats now more often. And it's taking that little bit longer to sell. Buyers are a little bit more price sensitive and they're just not getting as many groups through as many offers on properties as what we were, say, three months ago. Uh, that's happening in Sydney, a little bit of a turning of the tide in Melbourne as well. But all the other capitals are still powering ahead with huge groups inspecting, lots of offers being received on properties and they're selling really quickly. So we've got these two powerhouse cities are starting to come off a bit, but the more affordable capitals haven't seen that happening yet. And I think it's that affordability factor. I must admit when I was watching uh, uh, Andrew Winter's Love It All List It program and uh, uh, he, he often showed how cheap Brisbane was. Someone could sell out of Melbourne, make a nice profit and buy a fantastic property in Brisbane, swimming pool the whole bit. Uh, they were a long way behind Sydney and Melbourne, weren't they, a couple of years ago? Look, they certainly were, and we've seen that not just in Brisbane, but through Adelaide, Perth, a number of these other capitals where there is an affordability factor. You know, six hundred to $800,000 still goes a long way there to get a nice freestanding house. And if you've got a million, you're going to get something pretty special. That's really attractive for a lot of families in Sydney and Melbourne yeah. that are relocating and buying either their own home there or even holiday homes and splitting their time a bit. So that is still driving those markets. Yeah. Um, headlines like 25% falls in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne. You, you, so you've been around the block many times in your life when it comes to a property. 
What, what's your reaction when you hear those kinds of very negative calls? Yeah, so it's a very big sweeping statement. It obviously then applies to the whole market, which is never correct. We see different cities and different asset classes and different locations perform differently at different times. So what we'll often see when the market does cool a bit is it may wipe out usually about the last 12 months of growth. So when we look at that correlation, if Sydney says had 20 odd percent growth in the last 12 months, that could potentially be wiped out. But in context, you hear 20 something percent sounds a lot, but it is only the last 12 months. And it might be more modest in other areas that haven't had a stronger growth. So, you know, your Melbournes and your other cities have still been doing really well, but they might only see maybe 10 percent. And that's that's a fairly normal correction to see. Hmm. Um, when the GF, uh, when the coronavirus um, crash happened, um, a lot of CBD apartments really lost value uh, because the the people who used to you know rent them out, either foreign students or people who were coming in to work in CBDs, they weren't there anymore. Are those sorts of properties rebounding in value now? So we still don't have a huge amount of the migration to support that rebound yet. So we haven't seen it come back in strength. And there's also a few other things that play into that is there's a bit of oversupply in some of these units around capital cities as well. So there's a lot built that maybe already exceeded the demand before we had this sort of fallout from coronavirus. So I don't think it would be the strongest sector from what we're seeing, but it's it's not doing as poorly as it was. We're certainly not seeing any more major retractions occurring. Um, but it's not, um, you know, some areas are doing really well. If you're getting that waterfront sort of unit right in, your, you know, your beautiful harbourside locations, absolutely doing well. But when you're getting into these sort of more student accommodation style properties, we're still not seeing those thrive again or yet. Hmm. Um, let's go into commercial property. Um, how popular is commercial property at the moment? It is a very high demand market. So we are seeing that there is much more demand across most of the capitals, to be honest, not just Sydney or Melbourne. Most of the capitals are seeing far greater demand for commercial property than there is supply, uh, which is driving pricing up. The rents aren't keeping pace with that pricing movement. So the yields are getting lower. So people are chasing prices up while they're chasing yields down. That's that relationship between the two. Uh, and, and it's really hard to, to secure a good commercial property. Good quality property is selling within days of hitting the market. Um, so it's actually quite a hard space for people to get into right now. Mm. When we talk about commercial property, of course, there's the big end of town commercial properties. Um, and I would have thought that in the CBDs where we're learning a lot of employees prefer to work Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, but have less interest in coming to work on Monday and Friday, um, that those sorts of commercial properties probably aren't pulling the same kind of price as they might have before the, um, the coronavirus. Is that true? So that's a really good point right there, is there's different types of commercial assets. Commercial is actually a very broad term. So when we look at the ones that are in high demand and lacking supply, we're talking industrial sort of warehouse properties, bulky goods, they're certainly lacking in supply. Medical style properties as well are in really high demand. But then you've got your office sector and your retail sector. So suburban retail is doing fairly well, but those inner city locations where you're getting those, you know, high rise unit, um, sorry, not unit, high rise office blocks, 
they are not performing as well because there still is a lack of people coming back into the cities. You're right, the behaviours have changed. And a lot of the, um, the big organisations that take up big floor spaces, like, you know, your big solicitor firms and accounting firms and the like, are collapsing down their space. So they're going from maybe three floors down to one or they're putting clauses in their leases that they can do that during the lease period if they wish. They can go from three or four floors to one or two without being penalised. So they are thinking ahead as to what their workforce looks like. Yeah, and tenants have more power than they've ever had before in those sorts of situations. In those situations, they do. So tenants have certainly taken the power back. Uh, and we saw a lot of that in the renegotiation of leases during that COVID period when the government allowed a lot of um, a lot of power to the tenants through those legislative movements. So, you know, tenants could get out, exit leases and get out of them a lot easier with less penalty. They could renegotiate lease terms and lease prices and go into rental waivers. And I think the market's still recovering from that. And there's still some of that hanging around in that particular sector. Okay. Well, one of the greatest... Um, sufferings that I have to cope with nowadays is if I have to buy a coffee in my suburban shopping strip in the morning. I'd rather come to work early where there are less queues in the CBD area of the op where, where, where my office is. But if I have to buy it at home, the queues are still long because people are working from home and using their suburban shopping area. Are those sorts of retail shops now effectively more valuable because there's more business in those areas now because of the coronavirus implications. Absolutely. The value comes through in things like lower vacancy rates and higher rents start to filter through with higher demand for those properties. So if businesses are thriving, more businesses want to go in, so there's more demand and they'll pay higher rents. Keeping in mind, though, the rents, when you're in commercial spaces, the rents don't go up instantly, that people will be locked into one year, two year, three year leases usually. So it takes a little while for that to filter through and come out through the other end in yields and how that, you know, how that has a, a real effect on value. But it's certainly heading in that direction while we're in this current environment and while people are looking at that. And, you know, the other space that's gone really well off the back of this, it's not all bad news, but the other spaces, the shared spaces as well, those co-working spaces are in high demand as well. So there are some sectors that have really had a positive outcome from it. Okay, and is there any other sort of property observation uh, which you know, you'd like to, to make that I haven't asked a brilliant question around? Well, all your questions are brilliant, but I think interest rates are a really hot topic at the moment. And mm. what I do want to highlight to people is that interest rates alone don't impact how the market values move. We've seen times where interest rates have been high and markets have still gone up and interest rates have been low and some markets haven't seen growth in values during that time. Interest rates is one mechanism of affordability. And what plays into that bigger story is things like expendable cash, um, wages, wage growth, um, diverse employment in different locations, coupled with mortgage stress. So if the area is more affordable, mortgages are at lower rates and there is good job creation with high income potential, that may not have as big an impact on those markets, which are some of our smaller capitals, as compared to areas around Sydney where people are carrying million dollar plus mortgages and there hasn't been a lot of wage growth and throw in a bit of inflation and that lever starts to get pulled a bit. So, you know, there will be markets impacted, but let's not take that broad brush to the market and say every market's going to go down because that's absolutely not what we've observed over the decades. Yeah. And ultimately we're in the hands of the central bank. If they rise too quickly and, and give us too many rises in a short space of time, it could hurt the market, but it's not permanent. 
That's true. And people need to always take that long-term view on property. I think what's really important is you assess your own affordability and do some budgeting on what you can and can't afford. And if you take that long-term view, the property market will make up through that time in the market. It, it typically does, but you've got to be able to hold through it. So that's an affordability thing that every household has to make their own assessments on. Yeah. Anna, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's Anna Porter from suburbanite.com.au. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget on Monday, we have another show and we'll be looking at a number of companies that look really interesting, in particular Appen that's recently had an offer, uh, an interesting offer indeed. That's the show. See you on Monday.